Come on, does anybody love him tonight? How much do you love him? Somebody said all the way. How do you define all the way? That's a good question, isn't it? Father, we just come into this place tonight in the precious holy name of your son, Jesus. Lord God, we thank you that you're here in this place. Lord God, not by virtue of what we've done, but by virtue of what you've given and what you've promised us because of the shed blood of your son, Jesus. Father, I thank you, Lord God, that your presence here, Lord God, is not interdependent upon us gathering in your name. It's not dependent upon us having the right song or creating the right ambiance. Lord God, you're here, Lord God, because you are the Lord God Almighty. That, Father, the ground in which we stand is holy, not because this ground has been set apart as a sanctuary or a church facility. Lord God, this place is holy, Lord God, because the world is yours and the fullness thereof. Lord God, your creation, Lord God, can only be holy, Lord God, because you're holy. So, Father, as we come into this place of in a time, Lord God, even of consecration before you, we ask in the name of Jesus, Lord God, that our hearts and our minds would be set up on those things that are above and not beneath. We pray, Lord God, that we would seek you with all of our heart, all of our mind, all of our soul, all of our strength, that tonight, Lord God, just for a few minutes, that, Father, we can cast all those cares down, anything, Lord God, that would try to impede the moving of your spirit and the speaking of your voice into our hearts and lives, Lord God, just for a moment. We can lay aside everything, Lord God, any weight, anything that would easily beset us or distract us, Lord God. And we bind up every work of the adversary, Lord God, whether that work is a work, Lord God, flowing and functioning in our flesh. Lord God, whether it's an external, Lord God, influence that he would try to bring into this place. We bind it, Lord God, in the name and authority of your son, Jesus. And we ask, Lord God, that just for a few moments tonight, Lord God. That, Father, that our thoughts, Lord God, would be in line with your thoughts. That our will, Lord God, would line up with your will. That, Father, in the name of Jesus, Lord God, that every hindering spirit, Lord God, every sin, Lord God, that would, that would come and try to, to persuade, every temptation, Lord God, every distraction, Lord God, in Jesus' name, for a few moments tonight, Father, we want, Lord God, this place, Lord God, to be holy because you're holy. We want to listen with holy ears, Lord God, and see with holy eyes and receive, Lord God, Holy knowledge, Lord God, so you might do a work of holiness in us. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen and amen. I got an interesting call today. Most of you folks here tonight, you can trim me just a little bit. Uh, no Pastor Don Eskine there at Raven Gulf Coast. He called me today and he was visiting in uh, the, uh, the state of Mississippi. And he was, he was there and he was doing a, uh, a pastor's banquet, I believe last night with a, uh, that's fine, with a group of pastors there through the Gideons. And he was telling me, he said, you know what, the, the Spirit of God moves so, so powerful. He said, you know, sometimes when you're in an environment, you don't know a lot of people. He said, you kind of feel like you're, you're feeling your way through it. Hey guys, young men, I'm not going to compete, compete with y'all tonight. Okay? Come on, get up there and sit down. I'm not going to compete with y'all tonight. He said that he went into that place and he said the Spirit of God moved. He said the Spirit of God just spoke. And he said there was no learning curve to determine what the people were needed. He said the Spirit of God just moved in holiness and righteousness in that place. 
And he said the next day that uh, some of the pastors were, were scheduled to go, some of the speakers were scheduled to go to various churches in the, 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 the surrounding area and speak. And he said initially he was told that he'd be speaking at a, at a United Methodist Church. And, and he said he was thinking to himself, oh, man, what am I going to get into? Am I, I going to get into kind of a, a stodgy type of place that, that uh, just is uh, very, uh, 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 very old school or whatever it might be that's, uh, that's really not wanting the, the Spirit of God to move like it did in this place? Then he said at the last minute he got word that he wouldn't be going to the Methodist church, but instead he'd be speaking at a, 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 a Pentecostal church there in the area. And he said he got real excited. And he's thinking, finally I'm going to go into a place that, that, that people are open to the moving of the Spirit of God. And, uh, and, and he said, man, I feel like God is just burning a word in my heart. So he ended up going to that church this morning and, and, and preached. And he called me. I guess he was back on his, his way from, from uh, Mississippi. And he couldn't even t- tell me what the name of the town was. Back into New Orleans. And he said, Pastor, he said, I've never been through anything like that in my life. He said, I, I, I went in and he said, the praise and worship began. He said, it could have been some cavemen. He said, just no life, no spirit. No sensitivity to the, to the, the person of Christ. And he said, when I preached, he said, God gave me a word that was literally burning in my heart. And he said, I could not believe the looks on the people's faces. He said, the, the pastor couldn't even believe it. He said, he was wringing his hands and he was saying, Don, have an altar call. Please have an altar call. And he said he had an altar call, but before he did, he said God gave him a word and he spoke it forth, a prophetic word to the congregation. And he said, it was like speaking to stone men. Now, what is so alarming about that is the fact that he went in thinking that here's a church that, 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 that has a name, so to speak. I think of the church of Sardis that, that, uh, that John the Revelator warned. He said, you know what? You have a name that you're alive, but you're dead. And he told him to strengthen those things that remain. So he preached. He said it was like preaching to stone people, to dead people that did not respond to the voice of the Lord. Folks, i got news for you in this, these last days. A good name or a a name that seems to be alive is not going to be enough for you. It's not going to be enough for you to begin to tell stories about what we we used to do or what happened yesterday or or last night. The testimony of Jesus in the life of the believer today has got to be a moment-by-moment testimony. It's not what happened last week, because as good as last week was or last month was, it's not going to do a thing for you in your relationship with the Lord Jesus right now. And if you hold on to the things of the past, if you continue to remember the nostalgia of what happened or how God moved or how intimate you were with Him last week or how good your your prayer was last week, what you're going to do is you're going to find yourself beginning to rest on your laurels just like the church at Sardis did in the book of the Revelation. Not only like that, but the church in Mississippi and churches elsewhere. And maybe you've had a time in your life where, 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 where you begin to talk about what was rather than focus and pressing into what is that God wants for you right now. And so I don't know what I want to know about your relationship with Jesus yesterday. I don't want to know how you were and how excited you were and how joyous you were and how determined you were yesterday. I want to know what's happening right now. Because He's not going to ask you for a resume, amen, on that day that He comes. He's going to look into the hearts of men. He's going to say, did I find faith in their heart right now? I was thinking about a couple of things, about three or four scriptures as we worship tonight. And the, the first one was, was one that's so familiar to all of us. But something came alive. I was thinking about John 3.16. So for God so loved the world. You know, and we can kind of sanitize it a little bit with our King James vernacular. We, God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. Now, I could pass by He gave His only begotten Son and and not realize what it meant for Him to give. 
Now we're talking about the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. We're talking about Emmanuel, God with us. We're talking about God coming down from that exalted place in glory and coming and taking upon Himself and in form and fashion of man and dwelling among us. We're talking about a God who created the universe, who holds it within the span of His hand. We're talking about a God who knows and sees and is able to do all things. And suddenly... He wraps Himself in the form of sinful flesh and He begins to endure those things that prior to that point they were foreign to Him. He has to suffer loss. He has to suffer humiliation. He has to suffer hunger. He has to suffer pain. He has to suffer those things in the body of flesh. Why? Because He loves you and I. Now folks, that's love. Because many times for us, we love somebody, but as long as it doesn't put us too far out. What if the love that you had to demonstrate cost you everything? And it left you destitute so that somebody else might have life. Now think about that just for a second. It's not as simple as reaching into our pocket and saying, well, here's five or ten dollars and I hope that helps you out. But it's saying, you know what? You're in a bind. You're in a situation. I want to give you everything that I got. I want to lay down everything that I have. I want to give you my last breath. I want to give you every possession. I want to give you every dream, every hope. I want to give you my, my past, my present, my future. I want to leave myself destitute so you won't be destitute. Folks, that's what happened when God came down in the form of man and dwelt among us. He said, everything that I was, everything that I could be, He said, I want to deposit it in this this form called Jesus. I want to deposit it in my self-made flesh and born of a, a virgin. I want to deposit those things. And I want to lay it out there to be beaten, to be scourged, to be pierced, to be crucified so that you can have life. I'm willing to die so you can live. This is in Matthew 9.36. Another one we know. It says when Jesus looked at the multitudes that He was moved with compassion. God loved the world so much that He did what? He sent His Son. He sent His Son, Aaron. He said, you know what? I'm going to send my Son because Aaron's going to need a Savior. I'm going to send my son because Aaron's going to need somebody that's going to be able to fill him up like nobody else can fill him up. He's going to need a Savior. and He's going to need a, a Redeemer. I'm going to send my son. Now, God in the flesh, God incarnate, Emmanuel. Now, he looks at that same multitude that God looked at from heaven. It says he was moved with compassion upon them. Now, we get moved with compassion when we turn on the television late at night and Feed the children come on and we sit there and we see the swollen bellies of African children that haven't had a meal to eat and we get moved with compassion. We sign up to, to send $10 a month to help a starving family. That's how we get moved with compassion. We get moved with compassion when, a, when, a, when, a, when an alcoholic stands on a street corner and he says, we'll work for food and we slap $5 in his hand and we think we've done a good deed. That's how we're moved with compassion. We're moved with compassion if we see an old person sitting on a park bench and we stop and we talk to them and, and hold their hand and give them some kind words and, and, and give them just a few minutes of our time and think to ourselves, boy, I, re- I really gave them something and, and I made them feel valuable just for a few minutes. That's how we're moved with compassion. But Jesus, when He was moved with compassion, it literally means He was impelled. You know what it has to be impelled? It's literally to have yourself something driven through you. It'd be like somebody taking a spear and just piercing through your, 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 your chest cavity, Troy, and, and coming out the other side. He was literally, he was impaled by what he saw. The same way that God was impaled with his love for us 
when he looked down and he saw the whole of his creation lost and without hope and bound in all the, the trivialities of this world, he was moved. And finally, John 10.30, and I'll read that. Simple enough. I and my Father are one. That's all it says. It says, I and my Father are one. What does that mean? That means that the thoughts that his Father had when he loved the world are the thoughts that he had. It's saying that the love that God had when he looked down upon creation, and he loved them so much that he was willing to send his son to be degraded and humiliated and beaten. He had the same thoughts. The same thing that God was willing to, to suffer and to, to lay down and to, to make that sacrifice. He said, I'm willing to do the exact same thing. And I believe it's Genesis chapter 2, I believe chapter, verse 24, you can look that up. When God created Adam and Eve, He told them, now you will be one flesh. You'll no longer be two, but you'll be one. You guys that have been married, you know, when, when she hurts, you hurt. When he hurts, you hurt. You guys that are about to be newly wed. means, you know what? Man, we're in this together. And folks, just as he and the Father are one, when we are walking in a genuine relationship with him, we're also going to be one with him. That's the type of union and unity that we've got to have. We've got to be willing to be impelled by the things that impel Him. We've got to be willing to be moved by the things that move Him. We've got to be willing to be occupied by the things that occupy Him. We've got to look towards the things that He looks towards. We've got to, to have our heart broken by the things that break His heart. We've got to set it as a priority, the same things that He set as a priority. There's a common scripture verse that quoted on the street, not probably not just by, by you and I, but by many others. When you're dealing with people that claim to have a relationship with Christ, but they continue to walk after the world. And we read it and we take them to James 4 and 4. Usually we just grab the second half of that verse, but I want to read it all to you. It says, you adulterers and adulteresses. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? And here's the part we, we like to use. It says, whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Folks, now I've got a question for you. And the question's not a question for those, obviously, that are entering a strip club or a nightclub or somebody entering a rated R motion picture or triple X theater or somebody going to a rock and roll concert. The question that I have for you tonight is for those that are entering church sanctuaries, they're entering Christian conferences or religious theme parks or, or some type of gospel music event. I'm not talking about those that are scantily clad and obvious that claim to have some affiliation. I'm talking about you and I who 
aren't readily decipherable, that the things that are going on in our hearts and lives are, are, are hidden under modest attire, they're hidden under a, a happy face, they're, they're hidden behind regular church attendance, they're hidden behind kind words in public, but, but gossip and, 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 and rebellion behind closed doors. That's, that's what I'm talking about, and I'm asking this question to tonight. And the question is this, have you become more intimate with the process of Christianity than you have with the person of Christ? Let me ask that question again. Have you become more intimate with the process of Christianity or more intimate with the person of Jesus Christ? What I mean by that is that the things that you do for Christ are more important than the time you spend with Christ. Is that you? Do you find yourself doing Christian things but not really seeking after the voice of the Christ? In other words... Have you become more intimate with the process of doing rather than the relationship with being? You know, last night we were there on the street and a woman shrieked out and she cursed. And as we began to call her to righteousness. And it was amazing. The more we called her to righteousness, the more she screeched and the more she cursed, the more she blasphemed. But what was amazing is what her comment was. And here's what she said. She said, as long as I pay my tithe to my church at the first of the month, I'm okay with God because that is the most important thing. That's what she said. I talked to another man that was sitting up on the wall and I talked to him and his, his little brother and the man was threatening his girlfriend with bodily harm and he was dropping one F-bomb after another and he, he had this big medallion, hubcap-like medallion hanging on his neck that was supposedly styled after the image of Jesus with a crown of thorns on his head. And I'm sure when he went looking for jewelry, he didn't think to himself, well, that's just a novel piece, and he, and he chose that. I'm sure something was going on for him to even pick that. Then there was a young woman that I talked to that was joined by what I presume was six of her closest friends for her bachelorette party. She had gathered together, together the wedding party, maybe her maid of honor and her bridesmaids, and she was wearing that little tiara, and she had a, the little mini veil. And, but the problem was she was dressed more for vice than she was for virtue. And as I dressed her, she said, you know what? Hey, I'm okay. I'm a Southern Baptist. And so we had one that said, you know what? I'm okay because I pay my tithe. We had one that said, I'm okay because... This little thing is my, my guardian, is what he said. Then we had one that said, I'm okay because I belong to a particular denomination or affiliation. And she could have said anything. I'm not picking on the Southern Baptist or the, the Church of God, which Pastor Don was in this morning or, or whoever else. But I had to ask myself a question as I thought about these things. It's, did their interest in the King of Kings and Lord of Lords begin with a Jesus who chummed up to the world's interest, who weaked at illicit sex, who put up with perversion, who encouraged drunkenness, or maybe there was a time in their life when the Spirit of God was calling them to a deeper place. Maybe they were at that place and that crossroads. Maybe they were at that, that time, and, but because of lack of true intimacy with Christ, what happened is it eventually digressed into a, some type of repugnant form that would finally take it to a place on a sidewalk in front of a dance club where it blasphemed the very name that it began to speak. Folks, do you think that that woman woke up one day 
spouting off obscenities, saying, I just need to pay a tithe. I can't believe that that's what happened. I can't believe that this man that sat there and he told me about the 10 years that he had spent in prison and got into the Bible, that suddenly he became an abusive uh, fornicator out on the street. I can't believe that that just happened. I can't believe that this young woman, that all she ever knew was was debauchery and, 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 and vice and the vanity of this world. I've I got to believe that somewhere along the line, that the Spirit of God came into that situation and they found themselves at a crossroads. And they could either choose to go deeper into the relationship with, with Christ. They could in, either choose to go and find the person of Christ or they could just continue into the, the process of Christianity, just doing the things that seem right, going the places that, that they seem to do, using the right vernacular, carrying the right translation of the Bible and belonging to the right organization or affiliation. And they found themselves further away than they ever thought they would go, deeper in than they ever thought they would go, saying things that they never thought they'd say, staying longer than they ever thought they would stay. And here they are now in front of a, in front of a, a den of iniquity at 2 o'clock in the morning on a Saturday night, still trying to hold fast that name like the church at Sardis. A name that I'm alive, I'm okay, I'm a Christian, I'm, I'm saved, I'm okay, talk to somebody else. I paid my tithe. I've got a, a gold medallion of Jesus. I'm okay because I belong to a particular organization. I got dunked in, in the water one day. Folks, where, 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 where and when do we come to that place? Where do we come to that fork in the road where it ceases to be about the relationship with Jesus, the intimacy with Christ, to be when it ceases to be impelled by His presence, moved with compassion, loving the world that He loved, and, and having that type of care for people, and laying our life down. When does, it, when does it move away from that? Into a place just going through the motions and, and using the right terminology. Where, where, where is that, that, that breaking point? Is it subtle? Is it something that slips up on us? Or is it a time that we come to those crossroads and we've made a definitive choice, not unlike Paul on the, on the, the, the road to Damascus when all of a sudden he was blind, that, that he couldn't make a decision based upon what he saw, but he had to make a decision based upon something God was speaking to his heart. Folks, I believe every one of us come to that point in our life. I don't believe it's relegated to these three people on a street corner. I believe that, that God is working. God is speaking. God is doing. And suddenly, He takes all the distractions out of the way, just like Paul was blinded. And the voice of God comes out of the place of darkness. He comes out of all those other things. comes out of all those, those, those anything that would try to, to, to influence us. And He speaks. And he said, you're either going to be impelled by my presence, you're either going to be moved with my compassion, you're either going to think the, like I think and, and do what I do, or when your eyes are opened once again, you're going to find yourself like Lot when he began to, to, to look at the fertile plains around Sodom and Gomorrah. It says he went and camped near Sodom, but just a few chapters later, he was no longer camped near Sodom. He was in Sodom. He didn't intend to be. That wasn't his destination. But when he parted ways with the promise of God, when he parted ways with the covenant that God had given to Abraham, when he parted ways and he began to look, there was a decision that had to be made.
I want us to look beyond that verse tonight. Not just that one verse from James chapter 4, but rather I want us to look at eight verses that might bring that idea of a friendship with the world a little bit closer to home. So let's back up to James chapter 4, verse 1. And here's what it says. It says, where do wars and fights come? Does it stop there? It says, where do wars and fights come from among you? Wow. What do you mean? Well, James wasn't talking to a bunch of heathen people. He wasn't talking to godless people that never heard the truth. James was talking to people that had been brought up around the gospel. They'd heard the truth. Undoubtedly, many of them had seen the miracles. They'd seen Jesus himself. They'd witnessed those things. They'd seen firsthand the the miraculous things, the testimony of the apostles. And so all of a sudden, he, he throws a question out here. And he says, where do these wars, evidently there were wars... Where do these fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desire for pleasure that are warring in your members? I want to read that again. Do they not come from your desire for pleasure? Where do wars, where do fights come from? Let me ask you a question tonight. Do you take pleasure in contention? Do you take pleasure in wars and fights? Do you take pleasure in those things that are divisive? Do you take pleasure in in things that rub people the wrong way? Do you take pleasure in, in being contentious towards your brothers and sisters in Christ? That's where he said they come from. I know people in the body of Christ that aren't happy unless they're in the midst of chaos. I know people that the minute God begins to speak to them and begin to deal with issues in their life, they begin to revolt against the hand of God. They begin to turn on one another. They begin to, to point fingers at one another. They begin to, to, to get in the flesh. Why? Because they find pleasure. They find solace in those places. They would rather be impelled by the pleasure of the flesh than impelled by the, by, by the compassion of God to move them towards righteousness. You lust, but you don't have. You murder and you covet and you cannot obtain. You fight in war, yet you do not have because you do not ask. And when you do ask, you do not receive because you ask amiss that you might spend it Upon your own pleasures. Wow, now we've got some context, don't we? Now we're not talking about people dressing like a harlot going into a nightclub. Now we're not talking about a guy with an idolatrous pendant around his neck. Who had some jailhouse Jesus and now he's slapping around his girlfriend. Now we're not talking about a, a woman who somehow thinks that Jesus is a pimp that she can pay off with a tithe once a month. Man, now we're talking about us. We're talking about us that go to church, that got the right t-shirt on and the right Bible translation. We're talking about us that can fall on our face and pray the prayer and speak in tongues. And That's who he's talking about now. Man, wouldn't it have been better just to have verse 4 and not 1 through 3? Why do you not receive? It's because you ask... Amiss that you might spend it 
on your own pleasures. You say God move in my life, and He's saying you don't want me to move so you can look at the multitudes as I did. You want me to move that you might spend it on your own pleasures. Man, you don't want me to come through that you might lay your life down. You want me to come through that you might take your life back up. You don't want me to move so that you can deny yourself. You want me to move so self will not have to be denied. You adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Now let's look at verse 5. Do you think that the Scripture says in vain that the Spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously? Do you not know that He will not share His presence, His allegiance, His love with another? Do you not know that? Do you not know that you can't serve two masters? Do you not know that our God is a jealous God, that... That he's betrothed to one? Do you not know that? Do you not know that we've been yoked together with him? Do you not know that we're one with Christ if we claim his name? Do you not know that's what he's saying? But he gives more grace. Somebody say amen. But then he says, God resists the proud. But he gives grace to the humble. God resists the pride. What does pride look like? See, folks, we think pride looks like confidence. We think that pride is always boastful. We think pride is in your face. We think pride is always parading. Not necessarily. Humility is pretty bold. Humility evokes confidence. But what about pride dressing itself as a false humility? What about pride looking like indifference? What about pride holding on to religiosity in the name of Jesus? What about pride being my determination towards the process but rejecting the person of Christ? It says, but God resists the proud, but He gives grace. He gives His divine influence and its reflection in your life to those that would humble themselves. Now look at verse 7 and 8. Therefore, let me say therefore. Therefore submit yourself to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Verse 8, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hand, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Folks, these are two phrases that I want to look at just for a minute here in James 4. That first one in verse 7, it says, Submit to God. Somebody say, submit to God. Are you submitted to God? Do you think you walk in, in submission to God? Now, here's the second question. What does he think about that? See, folks, it's not enough for us to think that we're submitted to God. Does God think that you're submitted to him? Does he say in vain that the spirit he dwells in us yearns jealously? Do you think the level of submission that you're walking in towards God is satisfying to him? Do you, 
think the level of submission that you have in your life towards God, the submission of your thought life, how about the submission of your words? What about the submission of your attitude? What about the submission of your, your, your faithfulness? Do you think the level of submission that you have is satisfactory to what He has for you? Submit. Then it's followed by that familiar statement, resist the devil and he'll flee. Anybody been trying to resist the devil lately? You're saying, man, he sure isn't fleeing very quick. Well, why don't you back up and submit? Folks, what's interesting about that word submit, it's used a couple of other times in the, in the Scripture that are akin to one another. One of them is in Ephesians 5.22. Husbands know this verse. So wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. In Colossians 3.18, is much like it. Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as it is fit in the Lord. Now, folks, both of these statements, obviously, both they relate to a relationship that a woman has with her husband and a, also, though, as a person has a relationship with the Lord Jesus. But here's what's interesting about this. And if you take notes, write this down. It's because this word submit is a very interesting word and it's got an interesting meaning. You know, it not only means to become subordinate or subjugated to someone, but it also means to place yourself in a position of vulnerability and exposure. Place yourself in a place of vulnerability. You know what it means to become vulnerable? What does it mean? To let your guard down. Put yourself at risk. It says, submit yourself, therefore, unto God. Resist the devil and he'll flee. If I will make myself vulnerable to him, I won't be vulnerable to him. Do I need to say that again? If I make myself vulnerable to the will of God in my life, I will not be vulnerable to the will of the enemy in my life. Have you found the enemy wreaking havoc in your life? Why is that? Because you've not been vulnerable to God. Because when I'm vulnerable to Him, now I put myself in a situation of submission. I put myself in a situation where I know what it means to resist the devil. Because I've made myself vulnerable to His will. I've made myself vulnerable to the voice of God. I've made myself vulnerable. I've, I've, I've let my guard down and I've allowed God to speak to me even when it's not something I want to hear. I've allowed God to chasten me even though I don't want to be chastened. I've allowed God to bring correction and bring wisdom into my life even when I, I didn't want to do it. What have I done? I've, been, I've become like Jesus. It says He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. In other words... When, when, when they began to beat him, he didn't defend himself. He didn't raise his arm and say, enough's enough. When they smote him on the cheek, what did he do? He offered the other cheek. When they plucked out his beard, he didn't say, don't do that to me. When they beat him on the back, what did he do? He took it. And he rose again to take it again. When he stumbled and fell, he got up and went all the way to the cross. He made himself vulnerable. He let his guard down. At any time, he could have called angels down to, 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 to save him from the cross and to avenge him. But see, he was one with God. And God said, I love them. 
When Jesus saw that multitude, a multitude that would later yell, crucify him, he didn't say, you know what? I'm going to handpick me just a few out of that multitude to be moved by because they're going to reject my message anyway. But before he was impaled with a nail, he was impaled with compassion. Why? Because he stood in intimacy with God. Because he became vulnerable by taking on the form of man. What about you? Are you vulnerable? Have you let your guard down? The second phrase comes from verse 8. And here's what it says. It says, draw near to God and He'll draw near to you. Folks, this drawing near is equally as interesting as that submitting. Because I want you to look at what it means. It means to be close enough to touch. It means to be pledged to someone. And in a deeper sense, it means to squeeze up against something. And so if I'm drawing near to God, I'm not standing at a distance. I'm not saying, okay, brother, I'm going to make myself vulnerable. But I'm going to keep some distance just in case. It's saying, I'm going to let my, my guard down, but you know what? I'm not going to totally expose my heart and my life to you because you might take that and use it against me. It's saying, you know what? I'm going to, I'm going to trust you, but just to a degree, and you've got to earn my trust. But it's saying, you know what? If I'm coming to him and I'm drawing nigh to him, it's literally that I'm going to squeeze up against him. That I'm going to remove any, any, any variableness. I'm going to remove any difference. I'm going to remove any uh, distance from us. I'm going to squeeze right up against him. Just like John the Beloved, he squeezed and he put his head up on his chest. Why? And it says that he could hear his heartbeat. God, I'm going to position myself where I'm hearing your heartbeat. That my heart is beating in unison with yours. My, my heart is being and I'm walking in lockstep with you. That every thought I have is going to be your thought. Every breath I take is going to be your breath. Every decision that I make is going to be your decision. I'm squeezing up against you, Lord God. I want to smell like you. I want to be like you. I want to move like you. I want to talk like you. I want to be at that place of squeezing up against you and becoming intimate with you. Guys, I'm not too impressed with the message paraphrase of the Bible at all. But there's another verse of Scripture that we quote a lot from. And it's out of the Gospel of Matthew chapter 7. I want to read it to you, though, out of the, out of the message. Verse 22 and 23, because I think it will help us all today. Here's what he said. Matthew 7, 22 and 23. I can see it now at the final judgment. Thousands strutting up to me and saying, Master, Master, we preach the message. May we bash demons. I'll throw a few of my own words in there. We went to Razzles. We went to Mardi Gras. We walked the Tenderloin. Chicago, New York. Our God-sponsored projects had everybody talking, it says in the message. And he says, you know what I'm going to say to them? You missed the boat. All you did was use me to make yourself important. You do not impress me one bit. You're out of here. Folks, are you more intimate with the process or the person? You know, I talked about last week about that becoming a squatter 
Folks, is it, is it bad to feed the hungry? Absolutely not. He tells us to do that in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 25. Is it bad to, to go out and preach the gospel? Absolutely not. That's, that's our commission. That's a command. Mark 16, 15. We know that. How about casting out devils? Absolutely, we know we do that. But folks, when it ceases to be about the heart of Jesus, and it becomes that routine, it becomes just something we do because it's the thing to do, we're not a friend of God anymore. We've become the friend of the world. We've become the adulteresses and the adulterers. We've just found us a mistress that's a little more wholesome than a strip joint or a nightclub or a six-pack of Budweiser. I said a couple of weeks ago, folks, that information without intimacy only leads to apostasy. I can have all the information. I can know all the things to do. I can go do those things. I can cast out devils. I can prophesy. I can do many wonderful works. But if I'm living a life strictly of information, but my life and my actions and my deeds and my thoughts are not birthed out of an intimacy in that time that I've spent with Christ, it is going to lead me to apostasy. You know what apostasy is? It's that apostasy. It's a deviation. Just a deviation from the truth. It's that one thing that just gets a little bit out of square. It gets just a little bit off. Folks, the bottom line is, if in all my doing, if I'm not seeking, if I'm not desiring after Him, folks, I missed it. God has not given me a great big hooray. He's saying, you missed the boat, as that translation said. You're out of here. But God, look at all the great things I did. Look at all the notoriety. Look at all these followers. Look at these things that I did. The attaboys. Do you not know that I'm jealous? And I'm not even going to share my love for you and my spirit with your good deeds. And folks, without an intimacy with Christ, without that seeking after His face, all of our good deeds and all of our actions are just as repulsive to Him as the actions of the harlot and the drunkard and the liar and the thief. We can just smile a little bit more when we do them. Can you imagine standing before Him on that day and you're expectant? The trumpets to sound and people to say, You've arrived! Your chest is sticking out because of all the neat things you've said and done. And, and you get him and he begins to turn the pages to the book of life. He says, what did you say your name was? Huh, is that with a K or was that with a C? I don't seem to find you in the, the book of life. Huh, maybe in that other book. Maybe that book where I judge men according to their works. Oh, yeah, here you are. Well, you got a lot of stuff in your column there. Feed the children, outreach, missions trips. Hmm. But I got bad news for you. Those are all under the title of self righteousness. And that's not going to get you in. 
I'm sorry. Depart, you worker of lawlessness. Perhaps there's someone listening tonight. You served as a pastor of a popular church and maybe you're a regular speaker, attender at the big conferences or had a few citywide crusades or cookouts or whatever. You think to yourself, well, Jesus, surely you're going to bring up all those records of all those service projects, all those things that I've done. Maybe you've got a neat deliverance ministry and you've prophesied over a few people or had a neat word or a great blog or a website or something like that. And you've got this expectancy of God saying something grandiose to you. Folks, listen, I don't care who you are, what you've done. Unless you're intimate with him, he's going to say, just like he did there, I never knew you. Depart from me. Matthew 7, 20 and 21, he says, Where before by their fruit you shall know them. Not everyone that says unto me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom, but he that does the will of my Father which is in heaven. Folks, you know, that's a very provocative and troubling verse to a lot of people in the church because of what it implies. And if you've heard me preach a time or two, you've, you've probably heard me preach this. But that same word that describes intimacy, know or new, now he's joined it with that reproductive word, fruit, karpos, which is the offspring of the Christian. And then he declares that, that, that a verbal proclamation or saying, I know Jesus, is not enough to ensure me a place in heaven. Basically what Jesus has effectively done is just expose all this false conversion and this lack of genuine intimacy and the fact that it takes more than just a, a little sinner's prayer to save you. You can look at 2 Corinthians 5.17, Galatians 2.20, Romans 6.18, Colossians 3.5, 1 John 3.9. You see that. But what about intimacy with Jesus? I want to give you something tonight. Acts 1 and 8. Acts 1 and 8. You know it. You'll receive power after the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be a witness. What is that? Is it the fact that I can now speak with tongues? I can do that. I can do that whether I've been praying or not. Does it make it any less legit? No, it doesn't. That's why he says you have to judge those things. Because folks, until you're willing to stop and listen, you're never going to be qualified to go and tell. Can I say that again? Until you're willing to stop and listen, you're never going to be qualified to go and tell. You'll receive power after the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be a witness. How many of you want the power of God to operate in your life? Do you want it? Now let me ask you a question. You want the power of God to operate in your life, but do you have any idea what it's going to look like when it does? Really? Let me ask you another question. Do you have any idea what it's going to cost you when it does? Paul said our gospel didn't come in word only, but in power. The demonstration of the Holy Spirit, with much assurance, he said, 
that you can see what manner of people that we are. Folks, listen. When the power of God operates in your life, there will be no question as to whether or not you're intimate with Him. Do I need to say that again? When the power of God is operating in your life, it's not going to be defined by your Shandas, your Ikimohas. It's not going to be the, the, defined by the fact that you said, come out of that devil and that person writhed on the floor. It's not going to be defined by those things. It's not going to be defined by the fact that you prayed for somebody and they got well. It's not going to be defined by those things. What's going to define whether the power of God is in your life is walking in that, 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 the, the fruit of intimacy with Him. How many want that power? When that power comes, He said, you shall be a witness. And that is martos, or actually here it's martures. Which basically, we get our word martyr, which means that I'm going to lay down my life. And so if I said, you will receive the power to lay down your life, your hopes, your dreams, your opinions, your feelings, your disappointments, your bitterness, your unforgiveness. Now how many want that same power? Because the power of God, when it comes into your life... It's going to cost you all of those things that we hold dear. Those things that we, we become intimate with. You find yourself easily offended. It's going to cost you that. Is it easy for you to get your feelings hurt? You feel put out. You feel unappreciated. It's going to cost you that. Intimacy with Christ will cost you that. You find yourself wanting to be promoted. You find yourself thinking that you deserve more. The power of God will cost you that. You say to yourself, God wants me to be happy. The power of God will cost you that. You say, God's just going to have to understand. The power of God will cost you that attitude. Well, here's what I want. The power of God will cost you that. So if you're reluctant to say yes to that question, folks, then you have a big problem with intimacy with Jesus. Because intimacy demands that we lay our lives down and abandon the selfishness that once ruled us through our fallen nature. Than just a, what, a couple months, you guys are going to walk an aisle. Matter of fact, you're going to walk this aisle one month. The 5th of September, you're going to walk an aisle as Destiny Durant's. When you wake up on the 6th, you will no longer be Destiny Durant's. Even the government will require that you begin to change your identification because you're going to take on another name. You'll hand me a marriage license and I'll sign it off and your name will change. Folks, when we're married to Him, our identity changes. Who we are changes. The access that you'll have into His life will change. And the authority that He has in your life are going to change. Right now, he can suggest a lot of things to you. But once you walk that aisle and you say, I do, now all your decisions are going to be made through him. So if you have selfishness, it better leave it at that door because there's no room for it here. Just like it is when we come to the cross, folks. If you want your own life, if you want your own opinion, if you want your own way, Stay off the cross. Stay out of a relationship with Jesus. Because once we come to Him, when He says move, you move. When He says come, 
you come. When He says obey, you obey. Whatever He says do, we do because our life ceases to be our own. Why? Because we've come into union and intimacy with Him. We've squeezed ourselves up against Him. We've taken on His nature. We've taken on His desire. We've taken His name and we've called ourselves Christians. Now we've got to walk in accordance with His precepts. Man, I just thought I'd get to prophesy and speak in tongues and have a word of knowledge and no, 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 no. You'll receive power when He's come upon you. The power to lay your life down. Man, why don't they preach it like that? Oh, because then you couldn't sell the book and the tape series and the t-shirt. And offering basket wouldn't have anything in it. I'm going to give you something. Do you want to have a truly powerful life in Christ. Yes or no? You shall receive power. P-O-W-E-R. I think in terms like this all the time, so I'm going to give you how I think. P equals prayer. P equals prayer. Folks, this is mainly the time spent listening to the voice of the Lord. And not just the time petitioning the hand of the Lord. Do I need to say that again? Your prayer is going to be more about listening to what He has to say than bombarding Him with what you have to say. Now there's a place for that and we'll talk about it. 1 Thessalonians 5.17 says pray without ceasing. You know what that means? That means that I've got to stay squeezed up against Him. That means that I'm always listening for His voice. But it means that I'm never at a point in my life where I don't want to hear what he's got to say. It means that if I'm going this way and he tells me to go the other way, I have no problem whatsoever. I'm not going to debate with him. I'm not going to challenge him. I'm not going to question him. I'm just going to listen to him. That's what prayer is. Prayer is having such a sensitivity to the things of God that when people say, hey, will you do this? I don't have to say, I'll get back to you. I'll pray about it. You've already been praying about it. God has already ordered your steps. God has already been speaking to you. You've already been in conversation with Him. That God is speaking right in the now to you all the time. That's what it means. Because folks, if you're not praying, if you're not being pressed up against Him in intimacy, you are in spiritual adultery. Because the relationship that you have with Him is not through the process, it's through the person. And if you're spending more time with the process, the process has become a mistress to you. It's become like an illicit relationship to you. You have got to spend time with the person of Christ so you can obey and do the things that Christ has for you. I told you, there's a, there's a part of that. Eight, what is it, Luke 18? I believe, yeah. Luke 18. Verse 1. He spoke a parable unto them that men ought always to pray and not faint. What should they do? Always. When should I pray? When I'm in a bind? Always. When should I pray? When I have a need? Always. When should I pray when I'm at church? No, always. When should I pray when my kids are in rebellion? No, always. When should I pray when, when my wife's sick? No, always. When should I pray when I'm in a financial dilemma? Always. 
I should always pray and not faint. I should not grow weary and well-doing. I'll know in due season I'll reap if I do not faint. If I'll grab a hold of God in prayer, if I'll keep listening, somewhere in that conversation, my answer is going to be there. If I'll just keep seeking Him, if I'll just, without ceasing, if I'll just continue to, to acknowledge and listen to His voice, somewhere in that conversation, God is going to give me that hope. He's going to build me up. I'm going to be strengthened. I'm going to be encouraged. And he goes on to say, there was a city, in the city there was a judge which feared not God, neither regarded man. In other words, there was a hopeless situation. Anybody ever find themselves in a hopeless situation? You think to yourself, how am I going to get out of that? How am I going to pay those bills? How am I going to take care of this need? How am I going to get over that sickness? How is my kid going to come to Jesus? How am I going to be reconciled in that circumstance? How is it going to happen? How, God, you told me something. You showed me something. You said you're going to send me to the nations. How is that going to happen? Right here. And there was a widow. She was as hopeless as her situation. And she came under that hopeless situation. She said, avenge me of my adversary. And it says, he would not do it for a while. But afterwards, somebody say afterwards. He said within himself, even though I don't fear God, nor regard man. He said, yet because this widow troubles me, I'll avenge her. Lest by her continual coming, she wearies me. Now think about that. You know how to get yourself out of an impossible situation? You know how to get yourself over an obstacle that seems impregnable? You have any idea? You become more impossible than your situation. You become more resistant than the resistance. You become more determined than, than, than those things that have been stacked against you. Now, I know that my circumstance is impossible. But you haven't met the Jesus that's inside of me. If you think that's tough, man, you ought to stand toe-to-toe with me after I've stood toe-to-toe in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. Yeah, I know what that situation looks like, but I know whom I believed. I know who I've trusted. I know the one that holds the universe in the span of His hand. I know the one that says that this is the victory that overcomes even my faith. And if I'm not weary in seeking Him, I'm going to make my circumstance weary. My difficulty is going to become weary. Why? Because I keep on coming. I keep on pressing. When other people have turned back, I'm still there. I'm still fighting. I'm still praying. I'm still believing. I'm still listening for God. I've become that juggernaut. I've become that unstoppable force even though I'm up against an immovable object. And folks, when you walk in an intimacy with Him, you don't care what's coming at you. Because you know the one that's moving for you is able to do exceedingly, abundantly, more than you could ever ask, more than you could ever think. And all you've got to do is hold on and keep pressing and keep praying and saying, God, you know what? I'm believing that as long as I stay pressed up against you, as long as I'm squeezing and I'm submitted unto you, as long as I make myself vulnerable to you, I let my guard down, Lord God, and as long as I have faith in you, it's you that's going to be able to turn back anything that stands against me. Do I want power? It starts in prayer. But it doesn't end there. O is for obedience. O is for 
obedience. We were standing there on the street corner last night witnessing Pastor Alex, and two scriptures came to me. One of them was out of Ephesians chapter 5, verse 6. It's much like the two that I just gave you a minute ago out of Ephesians and, and Colossians. Colossians 3, 6. And basically both of them say, Aaron, it says that the wrath of God is being stored up for the children of disobedience. Hmm. So the consequence of being dis or disconnected, removed from, apart from obedience, is that I'm going to be a recipient of what? The wrath of God. And so the flip side of that is, if I walk in obedience, I'm going to be the recipient of the will of God and the promises of God. And so after I've prayed, I've got to be obedient. Hebrews chapter 5. Let's turn here real quick. Chapter 5, verses 8 and 9. Can I have just another couple minutes? Hebrews chapter 5, verse 8 and 9. God loved the world, right? Jesus looked at the world, was moved with compassion. Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands, as unto the Lord. Great mystery, I speak concerning Christ and the church. No longer will we be two, but we'll be what? We'll be one. So look at verse 8 through that understanding. Though he were a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. Do I need to say that again? Even though he was a son, he learned obedience through the things that he suffered. Man, wouldn't you rather learn obedience another way? But if I'm going to be wedded to him, my obedience is going to be learned through the things that I suffer. I went to a pastor's conference. This has been years and years ago, right after I planted the first church there in Texas. The person hosting it was the part of this association that they were just starting. and They were trying to get these churches to come up under their wing. And the spokesperson for this thing, he stood up there and he said a couple of things that day that, that still I, I can hear it just as though I was there. And this has probably been nearly 20 years ago. The first thing he said, Pastor Alex, he said, you know what? Everybody wants to be like us. We're like the city set on a hill. Then he looked at this room full of pastors. And he said, if you're going through something, he said, what that means, if you're having a difficult time with your church, if your church is not growing, if you're having a hard time financially at your church, if you're not doing things, it means that there's probably something wrong in your life. And when he said that, I thought about that. And I said to myself, I don't care how many thousands of people he has following him. He does not even know Jesus. That's what I thought. I said, if he walked in some of the neighborhoods I've walked in, and he saw that 75-year-old woman that hadn't eaten in two or three days, and he had knocked on her door during an adopt-a-block, and she said, baby, just a second. I'm talking to Jesus. I can't come to the door right now. But if you'd hold on, I'll be right there. And you go into her house and she don't turn the lights on because she don't have any electricity. What did she do wrong? She loved Jesus. She prayed. She sought his face. 
But even in the darkness, she obeyed. Because she didn't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeded out of the, the mouth of God. Who was this guy? Though he was a son, he learned his obedience by the things that he suffered. Are you willing to learn obedience through suffering? That's what intimacy with Christ brings. But look at verse 9. And being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation unto all that obey him. Don't you know why people have a problem and they always say, well, nobody's perfect. And they ask you, are you perfect? And you're bold enough to say yes because you know what the Word says about through one sacrifice, He's perfected forever those that are sanctified. The disobedient cower at that Word. But if I'm willing to learn obedience through suffering, the one who's called perfect will call me perfect. You know why? Because I'm so tightly squeezed up against him. People can't even tell the difference. That the same attributes that he carries, I'm going to carry. And when he says, be holy, as I'm holy, he's saying, submit, become vulnerable. And when you become vulnerable, you become naked, you become exposed, I'll pull you up. You draw near to me, I'll draw near to you. I will squeeze you to myself and who I am. It's who you'll reflect. Second Corinthians 10.6 Having in readiness to avenge all disobedience when our obedience is fulfilled. How do you avenge disobedience? Through obedience. You pray and you obey. P O W equals worship. W equals worship. Folks, you know what worship does? What does worship do? We come and we have praise and worship. You know what worship does? What do you think the primary function of worship is? Any idea? What does it do? I asked a girl on the street last night. I was talking to her. She said, well, I'm saved. I said, well, what are you saved from? She said, that's a great question. I have no idea. So she said, she was honest. Now we come and we worship, but what? why do we worship? What is the primary function of our worship? To acknowledge God? To draw closer to God? To praise God? All these great answers? You know what really what worship does? It keeps things in perspective because it keeps God in charge and it keeps us humble before Him. It keeps Him lifted up and it keeps us vulnerable. Worship keeps Him lifted up. And it keeps us vulnerable. It keeps Him in His right place. And it exposes us to His presence. That's what worship does. 
Now, the question is, how intimate is your worship? Think about that for a minute. When it comes to being exposed, you say, hmm, I can't do that. Well, you know, that's just not, that's just not me. Well, no. Worship isn't about you. Worship is about you becoming vulnerable. Worship isn't about your comfort. Worship is about us becoming vulnerable and putting Him in an exalted place. I know what John's form of worship was when he came in contact in, in, the, in the first chapter of the book of the Revelation. He felt like a dead man. He became totally vulnerable. He acted dead. He was like a possum on the, on the road saying, you know what, you can do anything to me that you want to because I'm not moving. How intimate is your worship? I can pray, I can obey, but folks, unless I'm constantly lifting him up, I'm not going to be drawn to that place of pressing against him. E is for evangelism. Now, as I look in this room at this live audience here today, I mean, none of you guys are, are in a shortage of that. Maybe you are in prayer and obedience and, and probably even worship. But folks, you can't just jump to the E of evangelism. Because evangelism, unless it produces or reproduces a relationship with God in others, it's not really evangelism. Intimacy reproduces. Sterility does not reproduce. You hear what I'm saying? It's not enough for us to go and stand on a street corner and tell everybody they're going to hell. Right? It's not enough for us to state the facts. It's not enough for us to, to ring the fire alarm unless we get the hose out and we quench the fire. So when intimacy moves in evangelism, it's not there to be right, it's there to be righteous. Because the wrath of man worketh not the righteousness of God. And so if I'm walking in intimacy, it's going to affect my evangelism. I'm not going to see that person as some wretched, you know, uh, uh, wicked person. I'm going to see that person that has been caught up by the cares of this world, and I'm going to cry out for the soul. You'll know when you've not been intimate with Christ. Why? You're going to be repulsed by what you see. Rather than seeing people like he did from the cross. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. The people that have just battered him and bruised him and crucified him. Father, they don't know. They've been deceived. Father, somebody's deceived them. Somebody's darkened their understanding. God, how can I cry out for them? How can I take upon myself, Lord God, the grief that you feel? How can I be impaled, Lord God, for them? Lord God, how can I stand in the way of them? How can I grab a hold of their, their legs, Lord God? How can I, Lord God, cry out? How can I, I preach through tears, Lord God? How can, Lord God, I bear some of the anguish for them? Prayer, obedience, worship, evangelism. And it comes down to the R, repentance. Folks, I've said this once. I've said it a million times. When repentance became a response to sin rather than a response to righteousness, it lost all of its benefits in our life. It says, when John the Baptist came preaching out of the wilderness of Judea in, in Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, he said, 
Repent. For the kingdom is at hand. You know what's amazing about that? You know when he said, draw nigh to me, and I'll draw nigh to you? That exact same word, draw nigh, is the exact same word used in Matthew 3, 1 and 2, where it says the kingdom is at hand. The kingdom is wanting to squeeze up against you. And so the goal of repentance is to bring me to a place of intimacy with Christ. And so repentance isn't our response to our sin. It's, it's saying, God, I'm not satisfied with where my mind was yesterday. God, I'm not satisfied. I need to be changed from day to day. I need to, to press in, Lord God. I need to think differently so I can be conformed not to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of my mind so I can prove what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Folks, if I can get a hold of intimacy and prayer and obedience and worship and evangelism and repentance, then I'm really going to walk in the power of God. Why? Because I've done the things necessary to bring me into an intimate relationship with Him. Amen. Let's all stand. You don't have to come up, Sue. Let's all stand tonight.